Well, good morning. Thank you, Steve, for welcoming me here and for everybody for having me with you and uh, for giving a bit of an intro of what I'm doing in ministry. It is a joy to be with you this morning, and uh, I was asked specifically to pass on a hello from George and Beth. As Steve mentioned, I've been pastoring there alongside George for about two years now, gradually taking over the reins for him as he works towards retirement because of his and Beth's health issues and the challenges that that presents to them. And it has been an absolute joy to get to know them and to be under and alongside their ministry at Curve Lake. Uh, And uh, when he mentioned that he was connected to a lovely church in Halliburton area and uh, that he encouraged me to make connections there if I could over time, I was like, wow, yeah, that would be be wonderful if I got to know there. I'm actually fairly familiar with this region. Uh, I grew up going to a cottage here that my grandfather owned before he sold it. And then more recently, my stepfather's family had a cottage till they sold it just this past May. And so it's been a regular thing for me and my family to come up, to enjoy the nature up here, to enjoy being on the lake. Uh, and uh, it, just a lovely, lovely area. And so it was a joy when I got reached out to, I think, sometime about six months ago from somebody here at the church, just saying, hi, we, we know you're working alongside George. We'd love to get to know you. And then, to my surprise, I found out that Dan and Becky go here and have for a number of years. And I don't Dan from a campus ministry that we were part of together at Trent University, which I continue to serve with. I helped reboot in 2013. Uh, and that was the context that I actually sensed to call the ministry in the first place. Uh, it was being there alongside my fellow students, learning to share my faith, uh, as well as care for fellow Christians in that secular environment, that God began to plant the seeds to ministry. So I wouldn't be at Curve Lake if it wasn't for what God did in my life through that campus ministry. And it's a joy that I know to walk alongside students uh, during the, the four years, five years that they spend at Trent uh, and navigate all of the complexities that come along in their life during that time as well. And so it was neat that God wove that connection together. Uh, and I also then, after that, found out that Maddie Barcroft, I believe, is living with a family here uh, from the church as well. And she uh, grew up in a church that I also pastored prior to my work at Curve Lake. So lots of little God connections that have bound us together, even though you've never seen my face before this very moment. So uh, amazing how God does that. I love it when he weaves things together. Um, As you're probably picking up between me mentioning the ministry at Curve Lake, as well as the work at Trent University, uh, and another ministry that I haven't mentioned explicitly is that over the course of the summer, I normally run summer camps for First Nations youth in northern Quebec, and that's very much a family endeavor. My whole family goes up north for the month of July and runs summer camps up there. One of the key elements of my ministry is intercultural work. Uh, All throughout my time in ministry, God has been putting people of other cultures in my path be that First Nations people in northern Quebec or in Curve Lake, uh, or international students who are at Trent University coming from all over the world, the Latin American students, the African students, the Asian students. Uh, we, we get all sorts of them at Trent University, and a key part of the ministry has been to reach out to them and to love on them as they come from abroad and learn to adapt to life here in Canada. Uh, and so today, this morning, I really wanted to share with you some of the reflections that I have picked up from my own journey as somebody working interculturally a lot, uh, as well as what I think is a major motif throughout the scriptures. So uh, the sermon is titled One in the Spirit, and we're going to be talking about Acts 15, which shows a scene that's pivotal in the life of the early church, where the church leaders come together to determine what should be done about the various cultural groups that were beginning to form the church at that time. And I hope it's an encouraging thing for you to reflect on here this morning, because this is more and more a part of the landscape of the church and of North American society in general. I suspect that many of you 
have been abroad in some capacity with various church ministries or things, and even if you haven't, I'm sure you've noticed that our country is increasingly made up of people groups who are coming from other places. And so we need to be reflecting on how is it that we as Christians are supposed to relate to people who are coming from other cultural contexts, either Christians or non-Christians, who might be open to the gospel as God works in their lives. Uh, And uh, as with any topic that we have to deal with in the church, one of the things I love about the Bible is this is not the first time this question has been asked. As much as it might feel new and intimidating that there's so many different people groups coming to be part of our churches and part of our society, the truth is this was very central to the things that the early church faced. They were dealing with intercultural relationships right from the start, and this passage illustrates well how we too can handle the intercultural relationships. So hopefully it's, it's helpful for you as you reflect on that theme, uh, and I share a little bit about how I've learned about that in my own ministry. I'm going to ask a handful of guiding questions as we go through this sermon. First of all, what is the context of Acts 15? Because I think it's important to understand what was going on in that moment that made this question about cultures so pressing. Then secondly, how does the church council in Acts 15 reconcile the differences between Jewish and Gentile Christians? Because those are the main people groups that were coming together at that point in time were Jews and Gentiles. And so we have to ask the question, well, how did the church council actually reconcile the differences between them? Uh, And that then forms the foundation for, I think, the third question, which is what can we learn from Acts 15 concerning intercultural relations within the church today? Uh, And that's obviously where we get really practical. Here's things that I've learned in my ministry and that I would encourage you towards that we can put into practice as we relate to different people groups within the church uh, and even within our broader society. So what is the context of Acts 15? How does the church council in Acts 15 reconcile the differences between Jewish and Gentile Christians? And what can we learn from Acts 15 concerning intercultural relations within the church today? I'd like to answer those questions for you this morning, and hopefully it's a helpful reflection for you. So, first of all, what is the context of Acts 15? And to understand that, you need to understand the centuries that were building up towards the whole of the New Testament, really. Uh, You see, the New Testament doesn't exist in a vacuum. I'm sure we all know that it exists in the context of the Old Testament and all of the history that's there. But there's a big gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament, about 300 years or so, uh, in which a lot was going on that shaped the life of the people that God sent his son into. Those people, of course, the Jews, the Israelites, uh, were in those 300 years and even the time before that repeatedly conquered by other nations, greater than themselves. And as we read in the pages of Scripture, they were forced out of their homeland and made to adopt other cultures' way of life. And even after they were allowed to return to their homeland to begin rebuilding their way of life, they were constantly under subjugation by these greater nations that said that you have to be like us if you're going to live peacefully with our people. Most appalling of this was the fact that there was many attempts by other nations to make the Jews worship their gods. They tried to make it clear that the Jews' God, Yahweh, the one that we recognize as the one true God, was not as great as these other nations' gods that had conquered the Israelites in the first place. And this was based on a common understanding, that basically the nation that won was the one with the greater gods. And so these other nations tried to make it clear to the Jews, your God is not good enough, you should worship our gods, or if you're going to keep on worshiping your God, you should do so alongside honoring the other gods that exist within our culture. 
And this was intolerable to the Jews because of the fact that they understood there was only one God and they could not bow the knee to anyone else, human or spiritual. The climax of all of this was the Roman Empire, a familiar topic within history if you ever studied history in high school. And the Roman Empire insisted that all peoples worship their emperor as God. They had a number of other gods that they recognized. In fact, they were very pluralistic, similar to our culture in many ways, in terms of just saying, well, your, your religion is largely a private affair. Go ahead, worship whatever gods you or your people group want to worship. But among the gods that you're worshiping, you have to recognize that our Caesar is Lord, is God, uh, and has to be honored alongside your gods as the source of peace across all of these lands. And you might even hear echoes of some of the claims that Jesus himself made when I say Caesar is Lord. This was a really important part of the Roman message that Jesus and his earliest followers were pushing back against. This idea that he is supreme, Caesar is supreme, uh, and thus deserving of worship and divine authority. The Jewish mindset in response to this was to create a strict dichotomy between Jews and Gentiles. They began to form an understanding that we are a people set apart and we have to retain ourselves pure from the other people groups who are muddied in this idolatry of worshipping human beings and worshipping other spiritual beings that should not be worshipped. And so they formed this strict dichotomy. The world was broken up into Jews and Gentiles, Jews and non-Jews. And the identity of the Jew at the time of Jesus Christ was very much formed in not being like those non-Jews. That was a key element of what it meant to be a Jew, was to not be like the Gentiles. And there were three markers that made that visibly recognizable that were particularly important to the Jews right up to the time of Jesus. The first of these, <laughs> normally this comes up one at a time, so there would be a pause for the laugh. The religious festivals that they celebrated, the Sabbath, as well as a number of holidays throughout the year, the food laws that they, practices, that they practiced, which many of us are familiar with even to this day, where the Jews practice kosher laws about what types of meat can and cannot be eaten, and other foods have to be prepared in a certain way. And then finally, circumcision, which set them apart in a visible way, and was supposed to symbolize the fact that their covenant with God was very much cut into their identity, because it had been cut into even their flesh. And Israel's hope was that if they remained faithful and practiced these things, if they practiced the holy days, if they practiced the food laws, if they practiced circumcision, and they taught all of the important meanings about this, saying we are a people set apart for the one true God, then ultimately God would send a savior king. He would send a messiah, the, the, the one who would be able to free Israel by throwing off the shackles of these great enemy nations and ultimately establish peace for the Israelites and God's kingdom throughout the whole world. Now, the common understanding was that this figure would be a military leader of some kind. And in fact, in the centuries leading up to the time of Jesus, there had been a number of people who had claimed that very mantle for themselves, but ultimately their attempt at revolution had failed, and people had said, I guess that wasn't really the one. So then, this is the context that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection came into and made such a profound impact. Because his teachings and his death and resurrection were responding not just to the broader cultural context going on with the Romans, but also to the Jewish understanding of what they were hoping in. They were looking for a Messiah who would come to be a military leader to force off the Gentiles and set the Israelites free and allow them to live a distinctly Israelite life once again. And 
Jesus' death and resurrection forced his followers to revisit how they understood that figure of the Messiah. Uh, His followers came to believe that the Messiah was never meant to be a military leader, but actually one who challenged the evil authorities by overcoming their greatest threat, which is suffering and death itself. The idea was that no one can ultimately subjugate you because even if they torture you, even if they take away your friends and family, even if they kill you, ultimately God's kingdom will prevail because of the day of the resurrection that is coming, as proven by Jesus' resurrection. And so this fundamentally changed the way they understood the role of the Messiah. It was not to conquer the Gentiles, but to give hope beyond the power and might of the Gentiles to be able to resist any sort of oppression no matter what. This sets the stage for the book of Acts, which is a book that's dedicated to understanding how this message, that the Messiah had come and had set people free, not by conquering, but by delivering from death itself, this is what the early church was taking out to the people around them. Jesus originally had a small group of followers, 12, 70, maybe a couple hundred people, who had come to believe in this message that he was the Messiah. And what we see is that the Holy Spirit begins to work within them to enable them to live lives that lined up with this hope that they had in Jesus Christ. That they would be the kind of people who would not resist evil with evil, but would resist evil with good. That they would overcome those who afflicted them by loving them and just allowing God to save them from whatever persecution they faced. And what's interesting is that the Holy Spirit doesn't limit his activity simply to the Jews. We see very early on in the book of Acts that the Holy Spirit begins to work in the lives of Samaritans, who were kind of half-Jews, not very respected by the Israelites of the day because they saw them as compromising in in their faith. And then, surprise of surprises, the Gentiles received the Holy Spirit too. And so... they see that there are Gentiles who are worshiping Jesus as Lord and saying we need him for our own sakes. We need to worship him to overcome the adversity that we are facing. We need his forgiveness. We need his power. We need his ability to overcome evil within our lives. And so the Gentiles begin to worship alongside the Jews, and this causes an internal tension among Jesus' earliest followers. The question that they face is, if the Gentiles are becoming part of our religion, if they're becoming part of our worshiping community, do they need to adopt the identity markers that set the Jews apart? Do they need to adopt the food laws, the holy days, and circumcision? And there was actually a lot of conflict going on within the church about this very question. There were warring factions, some of whom said, yes, absolutely, to become a follower of Jesus Christ, to follow the Messiah, means becoming Jewish, and so they need to take on all of these identity markers that have set us apart for the last number of centuries. But there was another group, largely led by Paul, the apostle, that said, no, not at all, that if God is already welcoming in the Gentiles, we too should welcome them in without any strings attached. Uh, and a lot of the New Testament is dedicated to trying to resolve this tension, We see that in Paul's letters, this is something he refers to a number of times. We see in the Gospels, where they write about Jesus' life, there's little interactions that he has with Gentiles that point towards the fact that he was already setting the stage for them being welcomed in. Uh, And we see often the New Testament authors revisit the Old Testament to see what is going on there to know whether this is something they should have anticipated in the first place. And the passage that illustrates this best, the one where all of this really reaches a climax, is the passage I want to look at today, Acts 15. The issue of whether or not the Gentiles need to become Jewish functionally is put before the leaders in Jerusalem. 
And these are some of the most famous names that you would recognize, including the Apostle Peter or the Apostle James, Jesus' brother. These were the heavy hitters, the megachurch pastors of their day, who were recognizable right across the early nascent church. Uh, And so what happens is this conflict has been going on more broadly as the Gentiles are coming to faith, uh, and the question is now brought before them, and they gather in Jerusalem to talk about what is it that we should do in relation to all of these Gentiles. And this is all, the stage for this is all set in the first couple verses of the chapter. Acts 15, verses 1 and 2 read, Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Okay, so this is the camp that says, yes, they have to be that way. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this very question. So what is the context of Acts 15? Jewish Christians were conflicted about how to integrate the Gentiles into the faith. And this brings us to the next question. Well, okay, how does then the church reconcile this difference? How do they actually mesh the Jews and Gentile Christians together so that this dispute would ultimately be resolved? And what we see is that first, the very first thing that they do is share stories. They talk about the things that they have seen God doing in their midst. They attend to their God-given experiences. And this is rooted in the fact that Jews understand, this is central to Judaism and to Christianity, that God reveals his desires by acting in the world around us. That he doesn't simply reveal things by zapping us with messages in our brain or by sending a messenger. He actually acts. He does things in the world that call attention to what he wants to be taking place. And this is something the Jews understood, and they began to share stories. What is it that we've seen God doing? And verses 7 to 8 and then 12 show us what they begin to understand. It says, After much discussion, Peter got up and he addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. And if you're following in the book of Acts, this is referring to something that happened about five chapters earlier, where Peter was sent to a Gentile believer named Cornelius, a centurion who had a number of servants, who had begun to worship Jesus. And so in the end, he baptized him, knowing that the Holy Spirit was clearly at work in this man's life, even though he wasn't practicing any of the Jewish customs, right? So Peter is saying, I saw God already had worked in the lives of the Gentiles and could not deny that they were a part of our faith. And then we see that the whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders that God had done among the Gentiles through them. So first they hear from Peter, this known and respected leader who's in Jerusalem and a key part of the council. And he says, look, I saw it happening even here in Jerusalem that God had embraced the Gentiles. And then Paul and Barnabas are invited to share about their missionary journeys. And they've seen this everywhere that they go, that God is welcoming in the Gentiles. So when they consider their experiences, the Council of Jerusalem recognized that God has already welcomed in the Gentiles without requiring them to adopt Jewish practices. Particularly important to them is the fact that there's signs that these Gentiles already have the Holy Spirit and they are already beginning to worship Jesus Christ as the Messiah. 
then they consider, well, how does this fit in with our existing understanding of God from the scriptures? And so we see that they quickly turn to the scriptures in, in verses 15 to 18. This is James, the brother of Jesus, speaking. And he's hearing these experiences, and he says, The words of the prophet are in agreement with this, as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild, and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. What happens here? Well, this leader in this context hears about these experiences, the Gentiles coming to faith in Jesus Christ, and they recall that there's been this promise given by the prophet Amos, one of the prophets that was speaking in the time of difficulties that Israel was facing under other nations. And he promised that the Gentiles would ultimately begin to follow the Lord the same way as the Israelites. As Israel was restored to good fortune, so too the Gentiles would come along with them and begin to worship him. And this is really just a placeholder for a number of different passages throughout the Old Testament that predict this very phenomenon. It was said over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament from start to finish that God's business was not simply in loving and rescuing the Israelites. It was in loving and rescuing the whole world and that Israel was supposed to play a role in that. And so throughout the New Testament, we see the early Christians going back and realizing, oh, God always intended for the Gentiles to come be part of us. And so by looking at these two things, first their experiences, we see God doing something in the Gentiles, and it doesn't seem like he's making them become Jewish. And then they look at what the Bible had already established for them, and they say, oh, well, we see that God was actually setting the stage for this all along. And based on this, they come to a conclusion. We have to welcome them in without imposing too much on them. This has already been something we should have been expecting, and now we need to be ready to welcome them in with a fairly small number of criteria. And so what we see is this leader, James, Jesus' brother, tries to sum up what he thinks should be done. He says in verses 19 to 20, It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from the meat of strangled animals and from blood. Here they land on a fairly minimal set of specifications. Avoid idolatry and its associated practices, including egregious forms of sexuality that would have been tied up with cult worship, and abstain from behaviors that devalue animal and consequently all life. And these are things that we see God insisting on all throughout the Old Testament. These are, these are things that are repeated over and over and over again that the Jews were supposed to do to avoid being like the nations around them. We see that their worship, their bodies, and the way that they value life are key elements of setting themselves apart. But this is very different than all of the laws the Jews had come to follow as being set apart at that time. Again, they had long lists of holy days and rules that you had to practice around that. They had a lot of different lists about the types of food they could or couldn't eat. And they had this ritual of circumcision that visibly demarcated them. And suddenly all of this is being put to the wayside with this very minimal set of specifications that's there. And I think this is really striking. 
It's important to know that this is not some sort of universal prescription of a whole lot of doctrines that everybody must believe in order to be welcomed. It's not a whole lot of practices that they must engage in to be able to be good people before God. Uh, instead, it's, it's just things that they need to do to avoid really offending God and the Jews. Beyond this, they don't want to impose anything on the Gentiles to make it as easy as possible for them to become Christ followers. And ultimately, all of this is what they agree on, and they send it in the form of a letter. And I think it's interesting what happens after they send this letter. You see, we see that after spending some time there, they were sent off by the believers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. Sorry, I should have set the stage better for this. This is after, so the letter has been sent, and now Paul and Barnabas and some of the ambassadors from Jerusalem are among the Gentile Christians, and they spend some time there, and then they're set off, sent off with a blessing of peace. And we're told that Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. And then, just a couple of verses later, verses 39 and 40, this is the end of the story. It says, They, this is Paul and Barnabas, had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. Now, when I was first preparing this sermon, when I was reading this chapter, I wanted to end before this part. Because what we've seen up to this point in time is the Jerusalem church faces a sticky question, and then they end up finding a point of unity and coming to an agreement on how they should work to bring in the Gentiles. And reading this, I was like, wait a minute. Luke, who's the author of the book of Acts, why did you include this bit right afterwards? I wanted to see a celebration. Hooray! We all came to unity. And then there was peace throughout the land. And you know what? This is kind of how we often think about the early church. We think, oh, they had it so much better then. There wasn't the kind of divisions, the kind of conflict that we have now. Uh, But Luke won't let us think that way. Immediately after this wonderful point of unity, we see two partings of ways. The first one, relatively peaceful, but still indicating that this group of people has their own interests over in another part of the world, while this other group stays doing mission in this region. And then the second where we see Paul and Barnabas, who have this shared mission to the Gentiles, now conflicting with each other over something that seems relatively minor, uh, which people they should bring along with them, uh, and parting ways in a seemingly hostile manner. And, and, and I think what this does is it keeps us from naively assuming that these early Christians were perfectly unified, unlike us. That's just naive. It's not true. They continued to have a lot of difficulties in how they ministered alongside one another, and we can learn lessons from that as much as we can learn lessons from the rest of the chapter. Uh, but we need to recognize what we're seeing in Acts 15 is actually unity among diversity. Unity even where their differences remain not unity where all the differences get eliminated. And this is going to play a key role in my takeaways from this chapter. So, what can we learn from Acts 15 concerning intercultural relations within the church today? And there are four principles that I derive from this passage, and these are all things that I've learned experientially as well as from this passage and others in the New Testament. The first principle is that ultimately our unity stems from God's activity in the world. God is the one who acts. God is the one who has a mission to save the world from sin. And his Holy Spirit is drawing people to himself by making them into followers of his son, Jesus. This is something we're, we're supposed to expect. 
that God is on the move all around us. To this day, he is living and active to draw people to himself through his son, Jesus Christ, and the power of his Holy Spirit. And in this sense, I think we can and we should express our unity with all who are committed to being like Jesus. This is the foundation of any sort of Christian unity. Where you see signs that the Holy Spirit is drawing people towards Christ, those people are people we should welcome and say, yes, you are part of my tribe. You are part of this faith that I share with you. The amazing truth is that God is at work everywhere we go long before we get there. Uh, And so we should be very wary of thinking that our points of unity should be in anything we have experienced. It's something that they're experiencing that coincides with our experiences. Uh, and, And that's our point of unity. God's at work in the lives of the people around us. We need to look and see where is God at work and how can we come alongside those people in unity. Now, I think this is important. This does not mean that we are going to be the exact same as everybody else that God is working in the life of. This is, really, this is really the heart of what we learn from this passage. The second principle that I derive is that there is no such thing as a pure Christianity. God always works in ways that suit the particular context. And this is what we're seeing in the lead-up to Acts 15. We should expect that individual experiences will vary based on the particular circumstances of a person's life. You're, you're raised in a very broken home, a context where there's a lot of abuse or a lot of anger, a lot of uh, exploitation of people. What God's going to do in that context may be very different than somebody who's raised with a really good, solid Christian background and has been taught to follow him with all of their life. And similarly, we should expect there's going to be differences across cultures as well, based on the particular experiences, the particular circumstances that they're facing, and the needs that they have that are part of God rescuing their culture, their people group, from sin. And this is what we see with the Jews and the Gentiles, right? With the Jews, they have centuries or even millennia where God is laying this good foundation, and his biggest challenge with the Jews is keeping them away from a legalism where they just make it all about the rules. Whereas with the Gentiles, he was very much freeing them from false worship, from idolatry, and bringing them into a worship of the one true God. And because of that, they didn't have all the baggage that the Jews had when it came to all of these different ceremonies. And so God worked in a way that was distinctly Jewish and distinctly Christian right in the early church. Now, when I look around the world, one of the things that amazes me is that I see this is happening uh, times 10 around our world today. If you study church history, over the past century or century and a half, Christianity has gone from being largely a Western European and North American religion to being a global religion. Uh, and, and as Christianity has spread around the globe, what we see is that there's emerging very distinct forms of Christianity based on what's going on in the different parts of the world. That there's distinctly North American, European, Asian, African, South American, and even indigenous variants of Christianity that are becoming more and more visible as the churches take hold and grow and flourish in those different contexts. And this is despite the fact that if we're looking at history honestly, European Christians often tried to make that not the case. (laughs) European Christians often brought in a message saying, to be a Christian means to be like me, to be like us. You have to use the same worship practices, and you have to teach the exact same things, and you have to sing the same songs that we are singing, etc., etc., etc. And despite this fact, God has worked in ways that really suit these different contexts, and we're seeing that the, the ways that people worship 
and the way that church functions within different regions, uh, and the kinds of teaching that emerge that tie in with the particular understandings of those cultures are quite widely varied. And if you ever listen to missionaries share about what's going on across the world, you, you realize there's not any one true Christianity. God is working in a way that's very distinct across a number of different regions. And this has certainly been my experience with First Nations people. What I see happening at Curve Lake is different than what I see happening here in Halliburton at a church like this. Uh, And I need to be sensitive to that and aware of it. My job as a pastor there is not to come in and say, hey, I'm going to turn your church into the kind of brethren church that I grew up in, but instead to walk alongside them as they discern what's God doing in our context and how can we worship him in a way that suits our culture and our experiences and background uh, so that we are really honoring him with all the gifts that he has given us. Now, I want to be careful, because you could hear me saying, okay, our unity is in God acting, and God acts in a number of different ways, so then that must mean anything goes. Uh, It might sound a little bit like I'm introducing some sort of pluralism, just God is okay with anybody doing anything. And that's not at all what I'm trying to get at here, which leads to the next principle. Uh, I think that what we really need to be doing is what I call redeeming culture. Redeeming culture. Culture. This is the responsibility of Christians from every people group, is to look at their culture, whatever collective understanding, collective practices they have been raised with, and to ask themselves, what within this is good and God-honoring and can be part of my Christian life? And then, what is not good? What is not God-honoring? What is actually evil and needs to be done away with if I'm going to be a faithful Christian? And this is something that we all have to be engaged with based on our particular cultural vantage point. This is not easy because seeing your culture clearly is difficult when it's all you've ever experienced. Our culture is kind of like a fish swimming in water. It's it's the thing that surrounds you everywhere you go. And it can be very difficult at times to discern what is it that I'm supposed to think about my own culture because it's just the norms that I've been raised with. And yet, despite this, I think this is something we see God insisting on over and over and over again. Look at the context you are in and discern what is from me, what is good and God-honoring, and what needs to be done away with. Certainly when you look at the Old Testament, this is what God is hammering on the Israelites about all the time. You keep on sliding into these practices that are not God-honoring, but I've done all these things in your life that should have given you the right practices to follow. Follow those and stop practicing what the other nations around you are doing. What this means for me as I'm working in my First Nations context is that often I'm very slow to tell my indigenous brothers and sisters, here's how you should be a Christian. Uh, One of the questions that comes up all the time is, well, what do you do with things like the drumming or the smudging or the sweat lodges or things like that, right? This is one of the big questions that indigenous Christians are asking right now. And on some level, my answer is, I don't know. That's not really for me to answer as somebody who's never practiced any of those things and wasn't raised with any of them as having any sort of significance. My task is to go back and ask myself, is it legitimate for me to have a band on stage using rock equipment to worship God and to have a light show and smoke and this deeply sensory experience? And is that really God-honoring or is there something in that that maybe distracts from God and and makes me set people on the stage instead? 
And I don't have a clear answer to that question, but it's one that I wrestle with a lot. How much should we go buy into kind of the celebrity culture that exists within our broader culture and, and really within Christianity in a big way right now? Where we set certain leaders on a pedestal and we go, this person, because they are famous, is somebody that we should pay attention to. Right? And I kind of go, hmm, maybe that's something the church needs to be grappling with right now. Is, is how does celebrity culture fit in with our Christian faith? And then when it comes to working with my indigenous brothers and sisters, my encouragement is now you have to discern what it is that God wants you to do with your culture, your background. Uh, and this is still very much a work in progress because it's very different than the message that First Nations people received at first, which was you have to give up all those things to become a European Christian. <laughs> right? And I think that was the wrong message. And you can see that it caused a lot of hurt and a lot of brokenness among indigenous people that lingers to this day across generations because of things like residential schools, where they were told, you have to stop being Indian, you need to become white. That was the wrong approach. Instead, the right approach would have been to say, well, here's how God is changing us in our European experience. Can we teach you about Jesus, introduce you to his Holy Spirit, and allow you to give in to the work of his Spirit as you discern what does a distinctly indigenous way of worshiping God look like, knowing that there's going to be certain commonalities, but also a lot of differences in what God does within our context. So this is my, my biggest takeaway, the most practical thing, is all of us need to be at work trying to discern how do we redeem our particular culture. And this does not mean that we will always be perfectly in step with each other. I wish that if we all just focused on redeeming our own cultures, that means, boom, we'd have peace among us. But as we saw, even within the early church, there were still pretty deep differences of opinion about how they should go about doing things. And so I think we can and we should differentiate between our different ways of being Christian. And sometimes we might even find that it's hard to partner with certain people because the way that they do Christianity is so different than the way that I do Christianity. I don't know how to link arms and actually serve together. But what we can't do is allow that difference to break our core unity where we encourage and challenge each other to keep on pursuing Jesus in our culturally distinctive ways. Uh, and in fact, if we can keep in touch enough, then we can actually learn from each other even as we might not link arms and partner with each other, even though we might say we have to, we have to part ways the way that Paul and Barnabas parted ways because we think there's something that we need to do that you're not doing, at the same time, I think if we can keep in close enough contact with each other to hear what each other is experiencing and how God is forming and shaping us, then we can actually grow better at discerning what God is doing in our own context. Because sometimes the best way to learn how God wants to change me is by hearing how he's changing you. That's why we do testimonies so often in the church, right? Uh, if somebody gets up and tells you about their story, you don't immediately say, oh, I went through the exact same thing as them. But sometimes just the fact that they've seen God from a particular point allows you to see your story afresh in a way that can transform and shape you in a new way. In the same way across cultures, that's what we can do. We can say, I have certain groups that I'm good at partnering with because they seem to fit in with the mission God has put before me, but I will bless and honor those who are different than myself and at least try and learn from their experiences, which might shape my own experience over time. This will be messy sometimes. The truth is, there will be times when you feel a little bit uncomfortable working with people from other cultural groups, especially those who say they're worshiping Jesus but are doing it in a significantly different way. That feels a little threatening because we are very comfortable with the way that we worship. 
But if we can get used to this, I think it will be edifying to all of us across this global Christianity that we are increasingly a part of. So by way of recap, what's the context of Acts 15? Well, we see the context is that Jewish Christians were conflicted about how to integrate the Gentiles into their faith. How did the church reconcile their differences? They imposed minimal requirements on the Gentiles based on the recognition that they were already Christian in a distinct way. And what can we learn from Acts 15 concerning our intercultural relations? Well, I think we can be unified, although not always partnered, with those who are deeply different than us through our shared pursuit of the redemption of Jesus Christ. By way of closing, this is something I started doing at Curve Lake. Um, Our church loves to have a discussion time after the sermons, and so I started picking up the habit of doing up some reflection questions. Not always this many. This is more than I usually do. Uh, But I want to leave you with these questions that you can think about moving on from here that tie in with the things that I've taught here this morning. And I'd love to hear from you afterwards if any of these make you think or if you've got other stuff from the sermon you want to talk about. So here's things to reflect on. First of all, how does your culture shape your Christian faith? I, I think we all need to be asking this question because we can be so blind to it and think my way is the only way or the normal way of being a Christian when that is increasingly untrue. So how does your culture shape your Christian faith? Second, what are some distinctives about your culture that Christians from other cultures might struggle to embrace? This is is an important question for us. Hey, maybe some people don't like the way I do things, and I need to be cognizant of that. And vice versa, what are some things that make you uncomfortable about Christians from other cultures? This might be Christians you know personally, things that you've seen when you've gone to other types of churches than your own, or it might be just things you see on the internet or read in books and stuff like that. What are things that make you a little bit uncomfortable? And then, what are some things that you've learned from Christians from other cultures that have helped you grow in your faith? Right? And so I, th- I think by being honest about these discomforts, some things I do might make other people discomfort, uh, uncomfortable. Uh, things that other people do do make me a little bit uncomfortable. But despite that, I can glean something. I can learn something from those other people groups that help me grow in my faith. And then finally, what are some attributes that you might look for in a ministry partner that you wouldn't expect every Christian to share? Uh, And again, this is kind of an honest assessment, that there's going to be certain types of proximity that require a certain kind of unity that doesn't mean we write other people off as being not Christian. So what are some attributes you might look for in a ministry partner that you wouldn't expect every Christian to share? So there's some reflection questions for you. Hopefully this has been a helpful thought. I know it's a little bit heady, but the biggest thing I'd press on you is this idea of redeeming our cultures. I think that all of us should be very engaged in this process and encouraging other Christians to be doing the same. And as we do so, I think the church will be stronger for it. It's certainly something I have found life-giving in my work, my ministry, and my own personal faith. Uh, And I hope that over time we can get better and better at that. Let's pray, and then we'll close off, I assume, with some more worship, is, is what I expect to come next. Heavenly Father, thank you that we're able to gather here on this Sunday morning and worship you that millennia after the time of Jesus Christ, your Son incarnate, uh, we, who largely are Gentile people, are able to come together and worship you in a way that suits our European background uh, and uh, make you known here in this place of Halliburton. And thank you as well that you are working across the world today in ways that really are new and fresh and exciting over the last couple of centuries. Uh, And we want to honor you by recognizing that that really is your work, that you are drawing people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation together to worship at your eternal throne. 
And so, Father, I pray that as we see more of that happening around us because of our media and because of the changing landscape of our culture, that we would be slow to write people off, quick to look and see how you might be at work in their midst, and quick to point to those signs of unity that can join us together, uh, and then see how we can encourage each other as we seek to redeem our cultures in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Bless us in this pursuit, and help us to continue worshiping you here today as we round out our service. In Jesus' name, amen.